and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to our daily devotional for May the 28th. So if you recall, if you remember, <coughs> our daily devotional is divided into two different segments. We have our verse of the day segment, and we have our through the Bible in one year segment. <coughs> so our verse of the day for May the 28th comes from Matthew chapter 5, <coughs> verse 3, which says, in spirit is the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> so the word blessed that is used here refers to the well-being and joy of those who because of their relationship to Christ and his word find their place in God's kingdom. The benefits of that membership include God's constant love, his constant care, his constant presence, and his spiritual salvation. <coughs> but however, there are certain character requirements if we wish to see the benefits of God's kingdom. So we must be guided by God's purposes and values, and not by the ways and values of the world. That's the character requirements. You gotta be guided by God's purposes, and you gotta be guided by God's values, not by the ways and <coughs> the values of the world. So the first of these character requirements is to be poor in spirit. When we say that we're talking about not being arrogant or self-reliant. So what we must do is we must humbly recognize that we are not spiritually self-sufficient. That means that we cannot earn a place in God's kingdom, and that we need the Holy Spirit's life, power, and grace in order to receive the benefits of spiritual salvation. So here is how the Amplified Bible translates. Matthew 5, verse 3, <coughs> it says, Blessed, spiritually prosperous, happy, to be admired, or the poor in spirit, those devoid of <coughs> spiritual arrogance, those who regard themselves as insignificant, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, both now and forever. And so, your reading for May the 29th, or 2 Samuel 13, John chapter 17, Psalm 119, uh, verses 80 through 96, Proverbs 16, 6 through 7. So that concludes our verse of the day segment. It is now time for us to move into our th the Bible in one year segment for May the 28th <coughs> is day 147 of our Through the Bible in One Year segment. Just a brief reminder, if you have missed any of these segments, you may catch up with them by visiting Upstate 
Christian.com. So we're in the day 147 of the Bible in one year segment. So our focus for today, for May the 28th, <coughs> is going to be John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. So what we saw me on May the 27th was saw the third and fourth of Jesus' statements that are found in John's Gospel. And so just a little bit of a side note here. We have now reached the halfway point in John's Gospel, but we have not yet reached the pivotal or climactic point of John's Gospel. And we're going to get there when we get into chapter 11. So hold your horses on that one. So in today's passage, what we see is we see the culmination of the festival cycle that began all the way back in John chapter 5. So today's passage also builds on the discussion that happened in yesterday's passage. What we see here should be a, or could be a continuation of the events that have taken place both in chapter 9 and the first half of chapter 10. So what in chapter 9 as we saw the man that was born blind healed in the first half of chapter 10 we saw <coughs> the uh, uh, this our this discussion with uh, Jesus and the Pharisees about leadership about being good shepherds so however we don't know for sure of this because there is no seasonal reference or there's no time reference we're not told what time of year the events in john chapter 9 the events <coughs> the first half of john chapter 10 take place so they could be a continuation they could not or they could not be a continuation they could be separate events so there's no way to tell for sure whether this was long, one long continuous event or a separate events that took place over the course of weeks and months. So now we're going to dive right into this. <coughs> so we're going to start in verse 22 and we're going to go through verse 24 which says, <coughs> Came the full of the day of Jerusalem. Solomon's colonnade. <laughs> the Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. <clears throat> so as we already said, this passage culminates the festival cycle that began all the way back in chapter 5. So the setting for this passage is Solomon's colonnade. So here Jesus identified himself as the Son of God against the backdrop of the festival of dedication. So this festival was celebrated in December, which means it's a winter festival because that's what we see here. <coughs> or, uh, and there is an old reference to this festival. So this is not one of the festivals that's mentioned in the Pentateuch, which will be the first five books of the Bible. So this was a, a celebration that was 
made much later. It was made after the creation of the original Jewish festivals. Its origin is found in Israel's battle for religious freedom against the Greek ruler Antiochus, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So the Jewish people fought courageously against enormous odds to defeat his forces. So, and just as the Jewish people commemorated their deliverance from a tyrannical ruler, Jesus declared that God sent him as the ultimate deliverer. So when the Jews, when the Jews could no longer stand it, they said they asked Jesus to tell them he was the Messiah. That they can't keep asking this question over and over and over again. Yet by now, it should be painfully obvious that Jesus is the Messiah. So now let's pick up in verse 25, and we're going to go through verse 30. So Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given to me. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what we see here is Jesus had already answered the identity question by his signs. It should have been painfully obvious to these people that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. He's the one that the Old Testament prophesied would come. <coughs> So their failure to believe was because they were not Jesus' sheep. So his sheep would recognize his voice, they would follow him, and they are eternally in their relationship with him. So the eternal destiny of the sheep depends not on their feeble efforts, but on Christ's firm grip on them. So in verse 24, right, which was the end of our previous section, right, the Jews asked Jesus for a plain assertion of his messiahship. <coughs> in verse 30, which is the very end of this next section, and he gives them the answer, which is what it means when he says, I and the Father are one. I am the Father of one. That was his answer. So Jesus is the Messiah, but he is more than the Messiah they anticipated because they were anticipating a political ruler who would come and free them from the religious oppression and the political oppression that the Romans brought upon them. Right? So, with that being the case, there's a very good reason why this happened now. Because remember we said this festival that taking place, the festival of dedication, the festival of Hanukkah, as we would now call it. 
had an origin in Israel's battle for religious <laughs> against a tyrannical ruler. So they were looking for somebody else to come along and set them free from another tyrannical ruler. So they did not understand that the Messiah was to come and set them free spiritually and not set them free politically. So Jesus said, Father, are one in nature <coughs> and in purpose. So now let's circle back around to verses 27 and 28, because that's the key to this section right in here. Those are the two verses that say, right, <coughs> one of the uh, it says, um, my sheep listen to my voice. I know that they follow me. Eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that true followers of him recognize and obey his voice and follow his direction. They learn to recognize his voice because they speak time communicating with and listening to him. They do this through time and prayer and God's word. <clears throat> they also learn to discern, which is to spiritually know something by the wisdom of God. So they uh, they learn to discern um learn to discern his guidance by practicing what he tells them through power and through the word. So the verbs listen to and follow are in the present tense. So what does that mean? What exactly does that mean? That means that it's indicated ongoing and consistent activity. <coughs> so to those who continue to follow him, Christ gives eternal life. Those who stray from him, uh, those who stray from him, refusing to listen and follow him, they are not his sheep. So that's verse 27, the part that says, My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. They follow me. So now let's move on to verse 28, which says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So this is a precious promise, a precious promise to all of Christ's followers, to everyone who is a follower of Jesus. So Jesus is talking here about spiritual life, which is knowing God and living with him forever, and spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God. So what exactly is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying death will not defeat the followers of Christ, nor can it separate them from God's love or from his presence. You gotta understand that. That's key. That is key to understanding everything else that's gonna happen. That's gonna be key to understanding the events that are gonna happen in chapter 11 that we're gonna talk about in a little bit. So you gotta understand that. So we as followers of Christ are destined for eternity with him. No power or circumstance on earth can take us the sheep, the shepherd. It is Christ's power and authority 
provide safety and security for even the weakest sheep. And listen to him as the good shepherd. So now let's go pick up in verse 31 and go through verse 39, which says, Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? <clears throat> They're not stoning you for any good work, they replied. But for blasphemy, because you a mere man claim to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I have sent you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own, and sent into the world? Why then do you, do you accuse me of blasphemy, because I said I am God's son? Do not believe as I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. So the Jews understood Jesus' claim as being blasphemy because he equated himself with God. He said, I and God are the same, which in their minds was blasphemy. No man, no mere mortal could be equal to God, could be equal to Yahweh. Understand that part, right? <clears throat> and so, what did they do? They picked up stones to stone him. So again, Jesus appealed to his good works in response to this threat of a stoning. And you see, they claimed, they claimed, keyword that they were not stoning him because of his good works, but for blasphemy. But Jesus again turns this argument on the head, because he replies by quoting Psalm 82, verse 6, which says this, I said you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. So while the passage is difficult, the most likely interpretation is that it speaks of Israel's leaders, that would be judges, in terms of God. So they fulfill their God-given role by their judicial function. So Jesus' argument was the lesser to the greater. So what are we talking about there? So if God called Israel's leaders God, the lowercase g, <clears throat> how much more appropriate is it for the Son of God, all of that in capital, so Son capitalized and God capitalized, <clears throat> to speak of himself this way. Jesus concluded by challenging the crowd to believe in him. His signs were a clear indication of his mutual indwelling with the Father. And once again, they failed to arrest him because his time had not come. So now let's back around to that phrase from verse 34, You are God, that was taken from Psalm 82, verse 6. Right? 
So, what is Jesus teaching? Jesus is not teaching. Key word emphasis there, not teaching. That his followers are to consider themselves gods. On the contrary, those who declare themselves to be gods, or live like they are their own gods, will fall under God's severe judgment. (coughs) And there are three important things, three important things that we need to take away from this often misunderstood phrase in John's Gospel. The first one is that Jesus was quoting from Psalm 82 verse 6 in reference to the judges who were appointed by God for specific tasks, with the emphasis being on how much more Jesus would be recognized as God since he was sent by the Father to fulfill his highest mission of spiritual justice and salvation. So that's the first thing. The second thing is in this passage, Jesus uses the phrase, you are gods, in speaking to the corrupt rulers of his day and age, who were biased toward ungodly people, and were even cruel to children. These rulers who acted as if they were gods would eventually, and will eventually, suffer judgment and die. So that's the second important thing we've got to understand about this passage. The third important thing is to declare oneself a god is the ultimate sin of the Antichrist. So who's the Antichrist? He's the one who's going to come and appear to be Christ-like to the world in the world's eyes. He's going to be the one who's going to provide political salvation. He's going to be the one who makes, he's going to unite the entire world and make the entire world one and appear to make the entire world better by quote-unquote freeing the world from political opposition even though he himself will oppose those who are against him who say no 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 that's not what the messiah is supposed to be that's not what the anointed one is supposed to do the anointed one has already come and you ain't him so that's what we're talking about with the antichrist so that's the third and final thing now let's move into these last two verses in our last three verses in John chapter 10. It's going to be verses 40 to 42, which says, Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. They stayed, and many people came to him. They said, Though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true, and in that place, many believed in Jesus. So what we see here is Jesus left Jerusalem for Bethany on the other side of the Jordan River. So it was there that John the Baptist once ministered. And even though John the Baptist was dead, his word and his influence still lived on. So what else? What else do we see here? Jesus did not return to Jerusalem again until his triumphal entry on what was to become known as Palm Sunday, the beginning of Passover week. 
wake up from here tomorrow when we see the incredible events that take place in Bethany because that's gonna be the crucial point of John's gospel. It's gonna be the climactic point of John's gospel. All of the stuff Jesus has done, and now you're gonna see one last final thing before we begin the downhill trek to the end of John's Gospel. So, in order for you to be prepared for that, you need to read 2 Samuel 14, verse 1 through 15, 22. You need to read John chapter 18, verses 1 through 24. You need to read Psalm 119, 97 through 112. In Proverbs 16, 8 through 9. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to another segment of our daily devotional. So this is our daily devotional for May the 29th. So if you recall and remember, our daily devotional is divided into two different segments. We have our verse of the day segment, and we have our through the Bible in one year segment. So our verse for the day for May the 29th comes from Psalm chapter 20, verses 6 which say, <coughs> Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to Answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are bought, they are brought to their knees and fall, but rise up and stand. But we rise and stand firm. So, what's going on here? So, as long as there have been armies and weapons of war. Nations have boasted of their power. Right? They boasted of the power of their armies. They boasted of the power of their weapons of war. What they don't seem to understand is that such power does not last. So what we see is that throughout the empires and kingdoms, and even nations, have risen to great power only to vanish in the dust. Because they have placed their trust in their armies, they placed their trust in their weapons of war. David, however, who was the author of this psalm, knew that the true might of his nation was not in weaponry, was not the weapons that the world uses to wage war with, that includes armies, that includes every type of weapon of war but in worship, right? So the true might of Israel rested not in its weaponry, but in its worship, not in its firepower, not in the firepower that it could deploy, because it didn't have a whole lot of firepower, right? But it rested in God's power. So understand where we're going with this, right? This small, small, tiny nation, the reason it lasted so long, the reason it was so big and grew to be so big, wasn't because of the power of its weapons, the power of its army, the power of its chariots, the power of its men carrying swords and spears and bows and arrows. 
But the reason it became so big and so strong and so powerful was because of its worship, because it placed its faith and trust not in its own weapons, but in God's power, not in the power of its weapons, but in the power of God. So why, why was it so critical? Because God alone, or an individual, so be sure your confidence is in God, who gives eternal victory. So then what's to be questioned, whom do you trust? Do you trust yourself in your quote-unquote weapons of war, or do you trust God and His power and might? And if you place your trust in your weapons of war, they will sadly fail. You placed your trust in God's power and might, then that will never fail. And so, which need to read for May the 29th in Second Samuel chapter 14, verse 1 through 15, verse 2, John chapter 18, verses 1 through 24, 119, verses 97 through 112, and Proverbs 16 verses 8 through 9. So that concludes our verse of the day for May the 29th. We are now going to move into our the Bible in one year segment for May the 29th, which is day 148. So again, a brief reminder. If you have missed any any, any of these segments whatsoever, you can get caught up by visiting upstatechristian.com. So our focus for today is going to be on John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. So yesterday, we were halfway through John's gospel. Now we have reached the pinnacle point. So what we see is that John chapter 11 is the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry as it is depicted in John's Gospel. <coughs> so after the events that happened in John chapter 11, there should have been no doubt in the minds of anyone who witnessed the events first or who would read about them much later. That's us. Right? That Jesus is who he says he is. There should be no doubt whatsoever after what we see happen in John chapter 11 that Jesus is who he says he is. And so what is this big pivotal event that John spends so much time talking about, right? So the climactic event of John's gospel that takes us up to the events of Passion Week, the events leading up to Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. So what is this big climatic event? So the, this big climatic event is the death of Lazarus, and Jesus raising him from the dead. Understand that. So we're going to split this pivotal chapter in John's Gospel into four sections. First section is the death of Lazarus that we're going to cover today, which is verses 1 through 16. 
The second section is the comfort pink of Lazarus's sisters. Here's gonna be verses 17 through 37, which is what we're gonna cover tomorrow. Uh, the third is gonna be uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, which is gonna be verses 38 through 44, which, which we're gonna cover on Tuesday. The third and fourth and final section is the plot to kill Jesus, which is gonna be verses 45 through 57. So once again, today we're going to be covering the first section that deals with the death of Lazarus. So let's get started. So we're going to start in chapter in, uh, verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 3. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, um, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord, and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. So the setting in chapter 11 is the village of Bethany, which is two miles east of Jerusalem, two miles east of Jerusalem. So what we see here is that Jesus' friend Lazarus was seriously ill, to the point of death even, right? So we're not told that yet, but we're going to see that in just a few minutes. So only the Apostle John in his Gospel associates Mary and Martha with this village, right? He's, he's the only Gospel writer that associates Mary and Martha with the village of Mary with an action that has not taken place yet in this gospel that we're going to see when we get to chapter 12. Right, so we're going to talk about that when we finish chapter 11, which will be sometime later this week. So the sister's message here demonstrates the great faith in Jesus' ability to heal. And we'll see that the word of Lazarus's illness reached Jesus while he was in the Jordan River Valley. So he got word of it in plenty of time to go and do something. Now let's pick up verse 4 and go through verse 7, which says, When he heard this, Jesus said this. No, glory. So that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, <coughs> excuse me, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, "Let us go back to <coughs> excuse me. Let us go back to Judea." So what's happening here, right? So Jesus responded to the report to the report of Lazarus's illness in a way reminiscent of his comments concerning the blind man. Jesus' statement that Lazarus's sickness would not end in death does not mean did not mean that Lazarus would not die. But that Jesus would rest 
restore his life. Jesus will restore his life. So you see, Lazarus' resurrection would ultimately bring glory to the Father and the Son. So in this narration, John makes sure the reader understands that Jesus' failure to return at once was not because he did not love the family. As it clearly states, he loved the family. You could tell by his actions later that he loved his family. So instead of leaving at once, remained two more days before departing for Bethany. So now let's focus our attention on three key verses in this section, which will be verses 4 through 6. And the first one we'll be focusing on is verse 4. Which says, um, uh, when he had heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death, known as for God's glory, so that God's Son will be glorified through it. So, sickness among God's people, always near, sickness among God's people will never result in death as the outcome. That's what we're talking about here. Death, remember, remember we're talking about that. We're not, about, we're not talking about physical death. We're talking about spiritual death. Keep that in mind. Because death, hold, death holds no power Christ followers and can never separate them from him. And we're going to see this demonstrate in a big, huge way tomorrow when we get into how Jesus decides he's going to comfort Lazarus' sisters, who have just lost their brother to some mysterious illness. <coughs> so in the end, death will be destroyed by the resurrection. That's both the resurrection of Christ, that we're going to see at the end of John's Gospel, and the resurrection of those of us who are followers of him when he returns for the second time. Understand that. Understand that. Death has been defeated. Death has no power over us. Death has no hold over us. If we are followers of Christ, we have nothing to fear from death. That is what Jesus was trying to teach here. That's what we got to understand here. The final truth is that the spirit of those who have a personal relationship with Christ will never die. And we're going to see that in a big way tomorrow. So now let's move on to that second verse, which is verse 5, which says this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So what we see here is a family that had a true and strong devotion to Jesus. They, they enjoyed a close personal relationship with him, and he considered them to be very, very special friends. Still, these people experienced sorrow, they experienced sickness, and they experienced death. So today, the same types of trouble touch the lives of faithful followers of Christ as well. <clears throat> Jesus is aware of the pain and will always be there to guide us through the difficult circumstances 
of life. So churches will have people who are out and passionate about their devotion to the Lord, those who are They will have those who are faithful in good works and service, like Martha. And they will have those who are suffering and dying, like Lazarus. So what we see is that families like this and others in the church may often wonder why God does not take a certain action. They may even feel that he has forgotten them. But if Jesus seems to delay his healing or his relief, it is not for the lack of love, it is not for the lack of mercy, nor is it for the lack of compassion. He is instead waiting for just the right time to bring the greatest honor to God and the greatest eternal good for those involved. So now let's move on to this final verse we're going to focus on, which is verse 6, which says, So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. So it sees Jesus delayed going to the family he loved in order to strengthen the faith of that family and of his disciples. At first it may have seemed that Jesus was concerned by their suffering and by their grief. However, John repeatedly, keyword that repeatedly emphasizes that Jesus loved this family and that he shared their sorrow. So we see is that Jesus' timing and purpose was different from what they wanted, but his plan would be proved to be the best, the best for everyone involved. So we ought to see here that God's timing and purposes may be difficult for us to understand, particularly when we're going through incredibly tough times. But God will always, according to his unfailing love, in his divine wisdom. So now let's pick up in verse 8 and move through verse 10. Which says, But Rabbi, they said, A short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you are going back. And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble. For they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night, they stumble. For they have no light. For they have no light. So there was, what there was clear in returning to Judea. Why? Because the religious leaders had already proven they want to kill him. They're looking for ways to kill this man because of the very thing that he's claimed, the very thing that he has proven to be true through his actions, and they can't stand it. They want to get rid of this man who has proven that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah through his and he's getting ready to prove it again in a very, very big way. But we're going to talk about that tomorrow. <coughs> so what Jesus is coming about 12 hours of daylight is more than just a reference to sunlight. So what we see here is that just as there is a limited amount of daylight, so too the hours for Jesus' work were limited. 
And we also see that if one walks in disobedience to God's will, they will live in spiritual darkness and will stumble and fall. So now let's pick up and go through verse 16, which will take us to the end of this first section of John chapter 11. So here's what this section says. This last section of the first section. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So when he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. We may die with him. So what we see his disciples misunderstood Jesus' comment about Lazarus being asleep. John then wanted to explain for the benefit of his readers, for the benefit of us today. That Jesus, uh, John explains Jesus' words here for the benefit of us. Jesus cleared up the confusion for the disciples by plainly, by plainly and clearly stating that Lazarus was dead. He was dead. And he had probably been dead since the first day that the messengers from Mary and Martha arrived to tell Jesus that, hey, Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is sick. You need to go to him now if you want any hope of seeing him alive. If there's any hope of you bringing him back from the sickness, you need to go now because he's about ready to die. This is another example of Jesus' supernatural knowledge. In other words, he knew something that he should not have known at all. It's further proof that Jesus is who he says he is. Who else but God can know that somebody already died? And the last he heard from human witnesses from non-supernatural witnesses, from non-spiritual witnesses, that this man was still alive, but sick. Probably very, very sick, but sick nonetheless. Not dead, but sick. However, what we see here, uh, so the disciples would have been shocked at Jesus associating joy with Lazarus' death. So what are we talking about here? <clears throat> Let me, so that's verse 14. So then he told them to let Lazarus dead. And for you I am glad. I am glad. I was not there. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. So the disciples would have been shocked. If Jesus was so skinny joy, they would have been shocked if Jesus said, I'm glad Lazarus is dead. However, Jesus' joy 
was that the disciples' faith in him would be deepened. And then what we see here, we see Thomas make this kind of strange, strange, strange. And so we just verse 16 says, Then Thomas, also known as Thomas, said to the rest of the disciples, Proverbs 16, verses 10 through 11. 